I thought I'd say a few things about the background of the Satipatthana practices. Are we all right? I hear some noises. We good? Audible? Yeah. Okay. As you know, early Buddhist teachings are rightly famous for meditation practice, for contemplative training, for mind training. Um, something we call meditation, which has always struck me as slightly strange, since the term meditation actually, coming from Latin meditare, meaning to think, it doesn't strike me as the most obvious term for the sort of thing that Buddhists are supposed to be doing when they meditate. Uh, it has never made a lot of sense and I've found nobody who actually admitted to having invented this complete misnomer. Yeah. Um, if we're looking for how the Buddha translated what we th uh, have become to uh, call I've come to call meditation, uh, things are actually not so easy. You know, there is not one single word for meditation in Pali. There are a, a number of words that come into question. It's not so straightforward. So uh, We have admittedly made it a lot easier by just using one term and pretending this is very crystal clear. But in fact, if you look at the Pali texts, it's not as clear as that. There's many one. Some of them, sometimes the Buddha just says, do samatha. That's actually what he says quite a lot. Just do samatha. Yeah. Or um, dedicate yourself, give yourself to something, yoke yourself to something. The famous term yoga, yeah, from yoke, juk, yoch, the thing you uh, harness two animals together or you... you you do that to constrain their lateral movement so that they have a little more juice for uh, uh, forward movement. Yeah, that's the idea of a yoke. So it implies both gaining strength but also limitation. Yeah. So if you yoke yourself to something, you're definitely tied to this. Yeah. You're giving yourself to this, and um, that's an in interesting Indian concept. In fact, it is connected with uh, distance. Uh, one of the most common measurements uh, for distance in Indian, uh, in Buddha's India, is the distance you can cover with a yoke of oxen in a day. Yeah, that's that's a yojana. Yeah, that's something. These oxen, when you yoke them together and you keep them uh, on the road, they can actually cover in a day. That's somewhere in between 12 and 16 kilometers. Uh, if you don't yoke them together, you will definitely won't go 16 kilometers with two oxen. Yeah, they just go, a they won't go in the same direction. B you'll probably never see them. Yeah. So the concept of yoga, something you yoke yourself to, you surrender to, you give yourself to, is uh, one of the concepts the Buddha uses for meditation. Anuyojati is one of the terms. So, yoke yourself. Yeah which is a term. Then we have a few other terms. 
Jayati is a very common one. From that, from that term comes the word jhana. Jayati doesn't actually mean to do jhanas. It means to, uh, yeah, although the, the word jhana is derived from this, uh, the verb actually doesn't, cannot be translated do jhanas. It means uh, something like um, engage, engage in an aspiring way. Then we have the famous bhavana, development, cultivation, bringing into being. That's probably the closest to uh, what we would call meditation. It's a very beautiful word, bringing into being. Something that is already here can be cultivated, can be made much of, can be uh, brought to fruition. Something that is not here yet, we can bring into being. Uh, that's an important concept cultivating things that are not there yet. Sometimes much of our practice seems to be focused about getting rid of stuff that is there and we don't like or we think we shouldn't have. Or, yeah. But actually there's a whole branch of teachings which are concerned with bringing that into being which does not yet take place. That's an important one. So this term bhavana has um, many dimensions. Four famous dimensions are development of ethics, my relationship to the social world, sila bhavana, development of the body, my relationship to uh, this body, to other bodies, and finally to the body we live off and on, namely our planet. So our relationship to the physical world is a dimension of bhavana. And then it gets a little closer to what we probably understand as meditation and that is citta bhavana, which means the stilling of the mind. Primarily the stilling of the mind and the cultivation of the four immeasurables, the brahma-viharas. Friendliness, compassion, joy, equanimity. These are um, the dimension of citta bhavana, particularly the stilling one, which is very crucial. And finally, we have the development of uh, wisdom, panya bhavana, which is the fourth department of bhavana. So, if you kind of look at four dimensions of culture and of development suddenly become one term called meditation, meditation becomes mindfulness and mindfulness becomes observing my thoughts in the head, then you realize some kind of uh, a little flattening of the concept has occurred in that process. So it seems useful to go back to that notion of development. So what is the uh, form of this development? The Buddha uh, mentions many, many, many times. One of the most common descriptions how meditation takes place is a standard, uh, more or less standard, a uh, little narrative that goes something along the lines, young man of good family finds faith and goes forth from home into homelessness, shaves off his hair and beard and listens to the teachings, uh, gives himself a dedication to the practice of being a young monk and then, uh, slight slowing down now in the narrative, goes on arms round, 
comes back, eats his food, washes his arms ball, washes his hand, and sits upright, cross-legged, with mindfulness erect, and practices uh, sati. And then speed seems to increase a little bit again in the narrative, uh, puts down the five hindrances, hindrances, little analogy for each, then realizes the four mundane jhanas, little analogy for each, and shortly after has done what needed to be done for a good son of a family and uh, for a person who has found faith in the holy life. Um, you think, okay, very good, very good for him. Uh, but um, let me think, I've been doing this for a number of years now, and I've seen others doing this for a number of years. You know, you wash your hands, you sit them down, open space, cushion, bundle of straw, uh, foot of a tree, Wherever you sit them down really doesn't that matter that much. You know, basically you cross the legs, make sure they sit upright, tell them to breathe in mindfully, breathe out mindfully, and somehow they don't just put down the five hindrances and realize the four jhanas. Yeah, that seems to be the anecdotal experience of this procedure. So we have a feeling something's missing in that little description. You know? So something's missing. And you're trying to find what is missing and where is it? We have a little sketch here, a meditative blueprint, and yet, forgot what the word is in English, the ratio isn't quite appropriate, yeah? the scale isn't quite appropriate. So, so some parts of that map seem to be very detailed, like he comes home from arms round, eats his food, washes his bowl, that seems to be in much detail, and then somehow how he puts down the five hindrances and masters the jhanas, there seems to be a little detail missing, so the scale seems to be slightly off in this narrative. So we wonder, 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 where, where could be the missing bits? And, you know, if you leaf around a little bit in these old texts, you find wonderful teachings, things like Dhyanapanasati Sutta, and various Satipatthana Suttas, and there, for the first time, you actually have something of a handle. You get a, a reasonably practical guide to meditation. For uh, once, the general narrative seems to open up and the scale seems to be reasonably coherent in there. Before that, in India, one has the feeling meditation was somehow known, but it wasn't much talked about. Um, there are some poetical descriptions. Uh, there's a beautiful little passage in the Chandogya Upanishad which tells us probably something uh, about a precursor of anapanasati, of mindfulness of breathing. And it says something like, let me see whether I can get it together. Uh, somebody speaks with somebody else and says, as a bird that is tethered with a thread flies away trying to find a footing and coming back, not finding such a footing, will inevitably come back to where that thread is tightened. In the same way, the manas, the mind, flies hither and thither. And when it has not found a footing, when it has not found a resting place, it comes back to the breath. So that is a description of meditation as we find it in a, uh, one of the Upanishadic texts, which are uh, a good deal older than the Buddhist suttas. Uh, but you recognize it's not very pragmatic. You know? It's not a very psychological description of how to do mindfulness of breathing. 
if you just wait till your bird comes back to the nest, it can, you can be possibly wait for a longer, very long time. You know, till your mind gets tired of thinking, it may, may, quite some time may elapse before you come back to the breath, to the natural binding place of the mind. So we are grateful that things look a little more detailed and the map gets a little more, the scale is upped a little, uh, yeah, uh, by the time we come to the Buddha. And meditation is there referred to in quite some detail. So one of the meditative maps is clearly the teachings on Satipatthana. My point for tonight is basically, this is more than just a meditation technique. Yeah? I may have mentioned Satipatthana's are broad. I've told you last night that we have lots of Satipatthana teachings, so it's not just one text. Um, in many ways, some of the most fascinating things about Satipatthana practice are not in the Satipatthana suttas, but are scattered. And uh, those Satipatthana suttas have a slightly composed flavor anyway. It is highly unlikely that the Buddha has ever taught these Satipatthana suttas in the way we have them today in the Pali Canon. Uh, in fact, uh, compilers of the canon give us a subtle clue that this is the case. Namely, they make sh they say Satipatthana sutta was given um, to the Kurus in Kamasa Dhamma. Yeah, now, if you look where uh, the Kurus live and where Kamasa Dhamma is in the, on the map of India, this is over with, way over to the left side where New Delhi is, where the Buddha most certainly has never set foot in his lifetime. Yeah? So this is a subtle clue of our compilers to say, listen, what you're going to hear here is very authentic and genuine Buddhist teachings. But we had to compile this. Yeah? This is compiled from a mosaic of individual small teachings. And we're flagging you this, because we're good guys, we're flagging you this by locating this teaching in a place where you and I know the Buddha has never been. Yeah? That's a polite way of doing justice to the framework of a Buddhist teaching, which is completely authentic, which is you find nothing in the Satipatthana suttas which you wouldn't find outside of the Satipatthana sutta in various smatterings of Satipatthana teaching, although not so elaborate. Generally, all the bits that we find in that sutta are elsewhere to be found. So, we have in that teaching um, a map. And this is a map, not just of a meditation technique, but it's a map of experience. There aren't that many maps of experience in Buddhist teaching. I can think of three. The first one is the map of our sense spheres, yeah, the six internal senses, six uh, external sense object. So generally referred to as the internal ayatanas and the external ayatanas. So the, the field of sight, the field of hearing, the field of touch, of taste, of olfactory experience. Um, and um, what is missing? Mind, manas, yeah, thank you. And their external equivalents. So beginning with the mind, those would be concepts and um, thoughts, images. Then for the other uh, ayatanas, we have correspondingly uh, tastes for and and for the for the gustatory channel um, smells for the olfactory channel um, 
we have sights for the visual channel and we have sounds for the auditory channel. So this is one of the maps of the world. And where the Buddha speaks about experience, sometimes he speaks in terms of those six internal and six external sense bases. There's nothing you can experience that wouldn't be part of that. Then we have a very unusual map, which is highly spoken of in the Buddha's teaching, and it is geared straight to make us understand the third of the characteristics, anatalakana. And this is the teaching on the khandhas, the aspects of experience. This is not a translation, this is a, an attempt to make uh, sense of the word. The, the word khanda is a very diffuse term. It's used in many, many different ways. And it can mean a pile or a, it can mean something square. There are khandas of soldiers. There is uh, khanda uh, refers to your shoulders. Anything rectangular is a khanda. When a tree is chopped down, uh, it's a, a tree stump is called a khanda. So there's many different ways you can translate that term. And it, what it basically means um, a conglomeration of something. So, in Buddhist hybrid English, uh, this is called an aggregate, which is, uh, uh, if I understand your language correctly, is about as meaningless as, as khandhas probably to most of you. So it's important to understand these khandhas are aspects of our experience. Whenever you experience something, this is going to manifest in one dimension of those khandhas. Now they all come together. You can't even cleanly separate them. In your experience, certainly you can't. Nominally, by naming them, you can. Uh, they're the form aspect or the reification aspect of our experience. They're the feeling tone aspect. In other words, the hedonic flavor of an experience, how much pleasure or displeasure is in there. The perceptual aspect of an experience, the formative formation aspect that anything to do with mood, impulse, uh, volition is the most crucial uh, ingredient in that fourth of the khandhas. And finally we have sense consciousness. But the khandhas are not an easy model because first of all they're mostly strange to us. We need to actually understand them first and that takes some conceptual undoing. And then we need to find out what they're actually used for. And both both aspects uh, demand a little work. But for tonight, uh, suffice to say, the khandhas are a model for experience. Everything you experience can be referred to in terms of khandhas. The khandhas are a neat way to refer very specifically to aspects of your experience without saying I, without appropriating, without uh, constructing a self as the protagonist of your experience. And thus subtly reifying your notion of solidity, of essence, of, of being. Yeah. So, what is the third map of experience? It is my understanding that the Satipatthanas are the third map of experience. The third map that not just speak of a meditation technique, they speak actually of all of our experience. All of our experience can be Looked, under, looked at from under the perspective of differing satipatthanas. Now what does the term mean? Sati is the famous mindfulness, or as my friend John likes to call it, recollection of the present moment, 
which is a, a neat little way how he does justice to the old meaning of the term sati or smriti, namely recall, bear in mind, carry on, carry something on in the mind. That's the old meaning uh, which the Buddhists inherited. And the present moment, recollecting the present moment, uh, it brings together the new meaning which the Buddha gave this term, namely um, anchoring the attentional faculty of the mind, uh, imbued with a few other aspects of which we have to speak another time, with the present moment. So recollecting the present moment does justice to both of the meanings of the term. It's old one about memory, recollection, bringing back, and the new meaning of uh, having a present-centered type of awareness that is capable of both a wide open zoom and it is capable of a very focused, precise zoom. Yeah. So that's the first part of Satipatthana. The second part of Satipatthana is um, slightly um, has been argued about very early on. So this, uh, according to Pali grammar, it's possible to resolve the compound Satipatthana into either Satipatthana or Sati Upatana. And they have two very different meanings. If you wanted a Satipatthana, then you basically end up with foundations. So the meaning of Satipatthana becomes something like establishing Sati on the basis of objective foundations. Yeah? The emphasis in this meaning is Satipatthana is four different objective domains in which you're supposed to be developing mindfulness. If you resolve the compound the other way, as upatana, you end up with um, upatana means presencing. It means standing nearby. It means um, doing something, attending to. Yeah, the, a very nice word, uh, upatak, upataka, is somebody who looks after somebody else. Yeah. So if you take the meaning of satipatthana in the second way of resolving the compound, then you end up with sati uh, not so much as an objective domain, the place out there where you play, where you practice satipatthana, but it's, it shifts the emphasis on the activity. Yeah? It becomes a subjective activity of application of mindfulness. That's more than academic, because if it's objective, then you basically have bits of, uni of the universe in which fall into these Satipatthana categories. The other way, you, the, sh the emphasis of the concept lies on you applying or establishing, presencing or putting yourself in the service of Sati. Yeah. Which does make a difference. So what are these four Satipatthanas? You mostly will know, know them or have heard of them. Uh, Kayanupassana, the contemplation of body, uh, Vedanupassana, contemplation of feeling tone, Chittanupassana, contemplation of mind state, and Tamanupassana, contemplation of mind object or mind processes. Um, simple enough as it sounds, um, if we look at this a little more specific, um, it gets a little more complicated. So the Body is fairly straightforward. In a way, you, everything you feel in the body, the verb there would be things like sensing, 
the qualities would be touch, it would be pressure, it would be um, texture, it would be uh, pain. Yeah. We we have some fair clear, fairly clear ideas what what body contemplation is. Yeah. The, the Satipatthana Sutta has a lot to say. It's in many ways the largest section of the whole text. Uh, some scholars seem to be under the impression that the oldest layer of Satipatthana teaching was just body. Yeah. And uh, there is some doubt that the body was just the sort of body you and I would probably call body, or whether the term kaya in there just meant a number of practices. So we have started today with forms of kaya and upasana. They are quickly named. Iriyapata is the posture. Um, we have Sampajanya practices, which is movement, uh, moving, bending, stretching off the cushion. Yeah, that's important. Satipatthana is not just for the cushion. Um, we have Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. We have Datuvavatana, the distinction, distinguishing of elements, thinking about bodily experience in terms of elements considering our experience in terms of elemental, sensory elemental qualities. Then um, we have uh, the uh, jhanal ground contemplations, the dissolution of the body in varying stages of decay. And then we have the practices of contemplating the body as composite, as a composite of differing organs and recalling the different organs in the body. Um, as you're probably aware, not all of these six practices are of equal fame. Uh, the majority uh, of these practices being taught are the posture, the mindfulness of breathing, sampajanya. Some teachers make a point of teaching the element contemplation. Channel ground contemplations and um, the asuba practices, the re recollection of the unattractive nature of the body, are rarely taught. They are taught, as you know, Bikwanalayo is famous for doing this, and a few other people, um, generally in a monastic context. This is not something that you easily teach people and then let them go home. Yeah, yeah. The, all of these practices have some power and they need a context. And if that context is not provided, uh, it's generally a safe, safe. Uh, suggestion that you uh, don't apply such things in w without having context and somebody who is looking after you when you do this. For tonight, I'm not interested in going into more detail on this. I'm interested in how these four Satipatthanas can be looked at. Yeah? Vedanupassana is the contemplation of feeling tone. Here, important that we distinguish uh, this quality, Vedana, which is about pleasure, which is a mental quality, although pleasure is always also felt bodily, even if we have the pleasure of, of resolving a mathematical solution, that pleasure is not just felt mentally, but it is, Vedana is a mental quality, and that Vedana is different from both sensation and from emotion. That's the important bit. Uh, the word feeling in English can, I understand, just about mean anything. You know? I have a feeling we should go now. 
tends to speak of a perception in my books or uh, um, there's no feeling in this means it's basically heartless that means it's probably an emotion or um, I feel this is wrong yeah this is a thought yeah this has something to do with my uh, with my thinking so a feeling is a strange term and it is probably not very useful to use that term feeling for the specific terminology as we find it in Buddhist psychology so uh, the candidates uh, for body contemplation are what I would call sensations this is what you feel with the body and in the body yeah? this is important to do that we understand each other that we get the terminology clear because there are meditation teachers who use that term for other aspects of, of uh, satipatthana then when it comes to feeling tone vedana we're speaking of a type of experience that deals with pleasure or displeasure we're not even speaking of the liking yeah that is already more than the pleasure if we if something is pleasurable we tend to like it and then we tend to want more of it or uh, intensify it or repeat it yeah that's yet another thing but the actual pleasurability of an experience has a very precise name it's a little awkward but it in greek it's called hedone pleasure and the proper word for that in in uh, in a technical language would be hedonic so if we feel vedana we feel the hedonic tone of an experience that's generally what we're pretty hot about we want the flavor of an experience that's where the meat is yeah? we go for the pleasurable tone of an experience that's why it's called feeling tone which is an awkward term uh, and sometimes translators just leave it with feeling but i feel this is very confusing since it pretends that this is a lot more clear than it actually is yeah? if you have a, a, a strange word like feeling tone then you're a lot better off because you realize oh this is not something i know yeah or this is not what uh, some of its um, some of something similar to the left and to the right may mean so this is something slightly different in fact it's only a terminology problem it's we, we we all know what pleasure feels like we all know what displeasure feels like and the term is quite exact it is strange that western psychology has not spoken more of that particular dimension because that dimension is very very powerful uh, in the economy of our attention for example much of our attention is squarely ruled by vedana you know by the fact that I like something or I feel something pleasurable and I feel something displeasing generally has a major impact on where my attention goes or where it doesn't go, where I pull it back and where I extend it. Yeah. So the third dimension of Satipatthana practice is <clears throat> in a way where most work happens. It's the citta. The citta is um, a wonderful name the buddha more or less refused to define it in the suttas uh, very much to the chagra of the commentarial tradition who then tried to clarify uh, with great uh, detail various aspects of the mind um, 
But in fact, the Buddha was very clear in his usage. Whenever he speaks of developing something, whenever he speaks of purifying something, whenever he, f- he speaks of a, a continuum of growth, uh, then he speaks of the term citta. That citta is capable of great intuitions. It's capable of um, lofty understanding. Um, it's capable of displaying its luminous inherent nature. Unfortunately, it's also a little capricious, this citta, and is easily fooled, uh, has easily pulled the wool over its eyes and has many foibles. And so, at the same time, uh, while it is capable of great leaps and bounds in towards awakening, it seems to be also prone to stumbling occasionally and falling into pits. So, so Jitta Nupassana is the contemplation of the mind, or more precisely, the factors that make up mental life. So think of it as the climate of your mind. The teaching specifically outline a couple of qualities, 16 to be precise, and um, some of them have to do with hatred and its presence or absence, desire, its presence or absence, Delusion, its presence or absence. Concentration, its presence or absence. Contraction, its presence or absence. Distraction, its presence or absence, and so forth. Yeah. We're going to have a look at this in more detail. Uh, that citta needs to be purified. It needs to be collected. It needs to be liberated. It needs to be uh, developed. It needs to be primed with... Uh, qualities of the immeasurables. And so there's a lot of hard work. And uh, structurally, citta is more complicated than Vedana. Vedanas, they tend to make... They just do little moves, yeah? Just basically, Vedanas don't have many names. They just say, ah, or they say, ah, yeah? (laughs) So it's very straightforward. In the structure of our experience, Vedanas are not difficult. There's also only basically three. There's pleasant and unpleasant, and theoretically there's something in the middle, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which uh, is not neutral, as you may hear sometimes. It's just we're indifferent to it. As long as it isn't strong enough either way, basically it registers as as indifferent to us. There's a few squirrels there which we could add, but we don't do this tonight. The citta has as its major flavor affect. It's the affective tone of our experience. And finally, we come to the last of those uh, satipatthanas, which is dhammanupasana. The word dhamma means two things in there. Very simple. It's, a, it's one of the most complicated terms, but in this particular usage, we can narrow it down to two functions. One function of the term Dhamma, this is a Dhamma with a long A at the end. Yeah, It's not the Dhamma of the Buddha, it's the Dhamma in plural, meaning phenomena. So that's states, um, or, f- or more object, mind objects, things, givens of the mind. Yeah, If you want it to be most literal than it would be givens, things that are given in the mind. That's one translation. So the objects is probably the most common one, although it's slightly misleading. It pretends that these 
objects, I don't know how they sound to you, but in my mind, object is always something reasonably contoured, it's reasonably clear where it begins and where it ends. And that's not necessarily the case with a, a, a rat's tail of association, isn't it? So some of the dhammas in your mind can be quite uh, hairy, isn't it? To, yeah, they're not necessarily neatly segregated, contoured and properly diced and so on. So dhammas can be quite sort of protracted and associatively netted things. They can be quite um, complicated. So one translation of that term is yeah, phenomena. The other meaning of the term Dhamma is specific to Buddhist teaching. These are a number of categories under which Buddhist teaching groups the experience of mind. Yeah. So it's very specific to Buddhist teaching and in that sense there are a number of specific Dhammas outlined we are um, to practice with or we are encouraged to take up specifically. Some of these are particularly salubrious for our practice, like the awakening factors, and others are particularly detrimental, like the nivaranas, the, the hindrances. So the fourth category deals with mind content. If you want to say, uh, all the things in our mind are dhammas, all the phenomena, every idea, every concept, every memory, every fantasy, every con con conception is a, is, a, is a dhamma in some way. So where does that leave us? We have basically a map that refers to the somatic aspect of our experience, kāyanupāsana, the hedonic aspect of our experience, vedanupāsana, the affective uh, aspect of our experience, jitta-nupāsana, and the cognitive aspect of our experience, Dhammanupassana. So in many ways you can say, we have basically four channels, and all we experience will manifest in these four channels. Think of it like TV. You have TV broadcasts happen all the time, on all channels, but you can choose in which channel you tune in. Yeah? So most of us tune in, if we habitually go about things, we tune into channel four. We tune into channel, a cognitive channel. We think, yeah. we think about things. We dream, we fantasize, we reminisce, we plan. All this involves thinking. We have received lots of input on the thinking channel. We've been encouraged to produce thinking channel experiences, verbalize thinking, uh, thinking channel experiences, write about it, get grades for it. Um, we're very much into that channel because it gives us a story. Yeah. The world is about stories. We're not just about greed and hatred. We want a story. You know, even if you're pretty greedy or pretty hateful, even then you still want a story. You need a story to legitimize your greed or your hatred. Or to, uh, We're all into stories. Particularly we're into a, the story of a character called I, who is, albeit highly fictional, uh, a, a character that is pretty close to our hearts. And uh, the major uh, validity this character gets is in channel four because we think about ourselves. Yeah. 
reflective self-awareness. This is something that kicks in with human beings uh, somewhere between two and three years of developmental age, if all goes well. And uh, after that, we're really preoccupied with this. We start to think about thinking. And we construe ourselves, we construe a history, we construe relationships, we construe perceptual worlds, we construe values, we construe judgments, we construe our life on Channel 4. So uh, that's what we're really into. And Channel 4 is basically the default for our attention. Yeah? The thing that chooses which channel we tune into is an attentional choice. Your remote, yeah, your Satipatthana remote, that is your attention. Where your attention goes, that's the channel you're on. So for many things, it is not necessarily the best starting point to begin on channel four, where all the story happens, because the material there is rather volatile. It's fast-paced, it has lots of charge, it ramifies endlessly, uh, and we have a lot of conditioning there. So in terms of our exercise right now in, in Satipatthana, we're, we're constantly switching back from channel four to channel one, somatic experience, body, going back to the body, returning to embodied present time experience. That's what we do, much of the Satipatthana practice. In fact, we never quite leave channel one in Satipatthana because that's where we find not just a slowing down of patterning, but we also find grounding in our experience. So think of these four channels, and it's useful to have this as a map, even as a theoretical map of orientation in mind. You know, When you're preoccupied with something, when you find yourself um, wrapped by something, when you uh, engross in a thought, in a perception, in a mood, in a particular activity, ask yourself what channel is what channel is my attention in right now? Where do I get caught? What is, uh, what am I besotted by? What is entrancing me? What, uh, what am I uh, antagonized by? Just acknowledge differing channels. Very simple, physical, somatic, then pleasure, displeasure, hedonic, then emotional, affective, and finally, cognitive, yeah? thought, discursive stuff. Now, this is not Satipatthana practice, let us be clear. Yeah? The Satipatthana practice is something on top of what I just told. This is just Satipatthana's as an orientation when it comes to meeting my experience. Because meeting my experience is not an easy thing. There's so much going on at any moment. And it's so fast. And it's so complex. And it's proliferating. Just about at any corner you pick it up, something else hangs on there. Yeah? Now, let us be clear, these four channels, they are not your true nature. Yeah? They're a nominal tool to make, to choose different positions, different vantage points to meet your experience. Different ways of practices are suggested, which we will go into in the coming days and weeks. But these four channels are continually broadcasting. Your choice, your intentional choice, is where to place your attention. That sometimes has dramatic consequences. 
If we place our attention in unskillful ways, we tend to aggravate our unpleasant experience and we miss out on the possibility of having an attenuating influence on unpleasant things. We also miss out our the possibility to actually cultivate wholesome good stuff. So just take this as a, a little map. These four Satipatthanas are always happen conjointly. You never just have one Satipatthana. Yeah? Even though you may be engrossed in one channel, it doesn't mean that the other channels are not broadcasting. It's just that you're not attuned to them. Yeah? In the same way, all the five khandhas are always coming together. You never get a single khanda. The world does not just consist simply from rupa khanda anymore. Think of it like a fruit. You have an orange, you know. You have an orange, you have uh, its weight, you have its shape, you have its texture, you have its smell, you have a color. And when you buy oranges or eat oranges or trade oranges, it makes a lot of sense to look at some of those uh, particular aspects. You know, you may choose that this is a good orange, a ripe one or a, a small one or a, a rotten one, or yeah, on the, the basis of one of these dimensions, you know, color, shape, weight, smell. Uh. But when you get an orange, you get all of it. You never just get the smell. You don't just get the weight of an orange, yeah? you get the whole thing. Although you can talk about the weight, you can measure the weight, you can judge them by weight. But you, when you get an orange, you get, you, you're not just getting its weight, you're getting the whole thing. So it makes sense to nominally distinguish this feature, weight, of an orange. And then you can size them and you know this has an impact on how much you charge or how much you pay. But when you get the orange, you get the complete thing, even though you may single out a particular aspect of it and make some decisions on the basis of this. If it's a genuine orange, it has a peel, it has a color, it has a smell, um, and it has a texture, not just weight. The same way our experience always demonstrates or, or comes on all four Satipatthana channels. You don't have just thoughts which have no affective flavor or no somatic component, or, um, or no um, uh, Vedonic tone. Yeah? Maybe it's subtle, but everything you think has a hedonic tone, has connections to pleasure and displeasure. Everything you think has a, has a connection to mood. Everything you think has a connection to body. Yeah? With some thoughts, this is quite clear. Yeah? You think of somebody who, whom you love, you can feel that yeah, immediately. When you uh, think something that makes you afraid, you have a, a very trenchant feeling going through the body. Yeah? When you're scared, this is not just a sudden mental event, something rips right through you. Yeah? So we have uh, experiences come in packages. Satipatthana suggests not that these packages should be fourfold and small, but it, it should, they suggest it may be useful to bring your attention to that experience from a particular vantage point, and that experience can be managed more easily, or it can be understood better if you choose a particular vantage point. Yeah. Good. Let me stop here for tonight.
um, we'll do. You'll hear more of this. You will revisit the map. Map. I hope to flesh it out a bit and uh, illustrate it with a couple of examples. We have time. This is the nice thing here with this course. Um, I suggest uh, we'll meditate for so twenty. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.